Good morning, friends, and welcome to Christ Community Church Home Edition. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, jump back into our study of the pastoral epistles. We're going to pick up our, our time in 1 Timothy by starting off again in chapter 4. But before I do, I want to take a, a couple of moments and explain why I want to do that. I want to spend a few minutes talking about that because I can imagine some of you might be wondering, wouldn't our time together be better spent looking into God's Word about what it has to say about um, how to handle cultural moments like our, like our own? And honestly, I kind of thought the same myself. And we did a little bit of that last week, didn't we? We, we looked at Matthew chapter 6 and what Jesus had to say uh, to His disciples or His followers or His listeners who definitely lived in anxious times. And He talked about them not having to be anxious. And we looked at a couple of reasons why we don't have to be anxious. And we even actually learned how anxiety can be a helpful tool. If we lean into it, it can help us learn what areas of our lives we can be more like Christ. Now, last week, I wanted to address that because as many of you experienced going out to Target and Walmart, there was just that, that sense of angst and anxiety that people felt. And I thought maybe that'd be a good thing to talk about. As I thought about this week, there was also something I kept noticing last week. It didn't register on my mind until I kind of thought about this coming Sunday of other things I kept hearing from people, not the people who were panic buying and kind of trying to stock up on supplies, but of a lot of the other people watching all this take place. Um, of course, they said it in a very uncharitable way, but what they said made me really think about something important. And, and maybe you've heard them say it your, them, yourself. It went along the lines of, yeah, these people are idiots, or, you know, like, what are they doing? You know, just expressing their dismay or frustration or, in some cases, even, like, disgust at the way other people were reacting. Now, like I said, it was pretty uncharitable, but as I thought about what they were saying, I think they were tapping into something that is true, and I would like to talk about it. What they were saying, in a pretty kind of mean way in a lot of ways, is that people just don't seem to have wisdom. People don't have wisdom. When you think about it, supply lines are good. Economically, this is the best time to have a global pandemic, right? There, there's no reason to be behaving in these ways. The biggest thing we have to worry about is people behaving in unwise, unwise ways, unwise manner, whether it's you know, panic buying at Walmart or going to concerts on the beaches of Florida, people are just behaving in unwise ways. And that's when I realized we don't need to do a whole topical series on dealing with crisis. There's, a, there's enough information out there. What we need to talk about is wisdom, getting wisdom. But uh, sadly enough, according to a Gallup poll, I was doing some reading this week, according to a Gallup poll, 54% of Americans do not look for wisdom outside of themselves when they're in times of crisis. So let me just read this to you from this book I've been reading this past couple of weeks and months. Let me just write, read this. As we've seen in America, 78% see themselves as spiritual and 56% say that in addressing life's crises, they are inclined to look within themselves rather than to depend on an outside power such as the Christian God. That, in a way, is no surprise, since 54% of Americans also think that the only truth that anyone can find will be found through reason and experience rather than in an external source such as the Bible. 54% of Americans only look to themselves in a time of crisis. Well, how's that working for everyone? I mean, clearly, it's not working out. 
Let's look to scripture, that, to look at scripture on what God's word talks about how we should seek for wisdom, right? So here's a couple of one. Number one, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And finally, Proverbs 21, 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. What the Bible is saying is that so often we're convinced of our own uh, wisdom, our own knowledge, and so often because, our, because of sin, because of our own pride, whatever it might be, our, we have a propensity to deceive ourselves. And so looking to ourselves as the source of wisdom, especially in times of crisis, is not a wise thing to do. Now, it's true in times of crisis, people aren't seeking wisdom. You know what they are seeking? They're seeking a way to feel secure. Right? And, and the, 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 the end result of those two things make a huge impact on how people behave. So wanting to feel secure leads to panic buying, doesn't it? Seeking wisdom leads to sharing with others in a time of crisis. Uh, wanting to feel secure causes people to circle the wagons. Seeking wisdom causes people to open their arms to those in need. Now, I'll grant you, that may be a short-term loss, but it is a long-term gain. Seeking wisdom may not make you feel good, but it will make you good. And that, at the end of the day, is what we're called to pursue in Christ. Not a certain way of feeling, but a certain way of being, right? And so, where do we find wisdom in a culture, even prior to this situation, that's so awash in, um, in feelings, so driven by their feelings? Well, the, the answer is pretty clear, right? God's Word, um, other wise people knowledgeable of the Scriptures, and quite frankly, history. And so when I'm in a cir- circumstance or when in crisis hits, those should be our go-to, God's Word, people wise in the Scriptures, and history. Now, the first two makes a lot of sense, but let me tell you the th- reason the third one's really important. Number one, as Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. And, and a phrase we've been hearing a lot in the last two or three weeks is, this is just unprecedented. Un- unprecedented. And I I may have even said the same kind of thing, but as I thought about it this week, it really actually isn't unprecedented. Actually, this almost identical scenario happened about 102 years ago. I'll talk a little bit about that in a little little bit later on. But the reason history is important is the question is, how did other godly men and women in times past who have gone before us, how did they endure? How did they persevere? How did they overcome? How did they have victory and testify of the Lord and His message and His salvation? So this week, I've been chewing on Matthew chapter 6, continually reminding myself of those truths. I've been talking to some of our elders and other people who are wise, and I've been doing some reading. First thing I was reading was a sermon by a a Presbyterian minister by the name of Francis Grimke. He's a totally unknown pastor to you and I, pastor in Washington, D.C. It was the first sermon he got to preach in his church 
after church services were allowed to be held again in 1918 after the Spanish influenza global pandemic caused churches all over the country to shut down. And so I wanted to get an insight from what he had to say, what he had learned from that experience. And, and maybe I'll share those, some of his insights when we all get together, get to be together again. But what really shaped my thinking about why it's important to get back into 1 Timothy 4 and get back into the routine of, of studying God's Word like we normally do is because of a lecture I read by an Oxford professor by the name of C.S. Lewis in 1939. You can find it in his book, The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory is a, a collection of a lot of his essays and lectures. Lewis was speaking to university students and the faculty at the brink of World War II, 1939, right before, prior to England declaring war on Germany. And the issue at hand was, what is the use of study and intellectual pursuits in a time when the world is advancing to heaven or hell? When the freedoms of Europe hang in the balance, how can students or faculty or anyone spend time on, on intellectual pursuits that seem so trivial in light of all that was going on? And in, in characteristic brilliance, Lewis pointed out that it's not whether or not we should be learning in a time of crisis, but should we be learning anything at any time? If we wait for life to be secure, to be beautiful, to be full of peace, free from threat, before we actually pursue anything worthwhile, we will never begin anything. There has never been such an idyllic time, and this side of the eternal veil, there never will be such a time. Crisis, as I was reading um, Lewis's lecture, made me realize it has this unique ability to focus our gaze on what is really urgent in life, doesn't it? And, and that is really helpful in a, in a culture of abundance and, uh, and sometimes trivial abundance. Crisis can really get us focused on the thing that is urgent. But it also can have a blinkering effect. And what I mean by that is we zoom in on the things that are urgent, but sometimes because that's all we're focused on, we actually also don't see the things that may also be important. Now, important and urgent, you, sometimes they go together, sometimes they don't. And in times of crisis, we can see the crisis at the moment and little else. But the reality is, crisis merely aggravates the human condition, doesn't it? The fact that this world is broken that things do not function the way they're supposed to be, that when we feel that vulnerability and anxiety, that's that indicator, things aren't the way they're supposed to be, and the reality is that's true. We weren't meant to live for this world. We were made to live for an eternity. And one day, for whatever reason, for whatever purpose, each one of us will leave this world to make it to our true destination. In other words, let me recap kind of Lewis's thinking here. If we only see the temporal crisis as the factor to consider whether or not we will learn or do all of our normal activities, we don't really understand the real crisis that humanity faces every moment of every hour of every day. And that is the true pestilence, the true plague, the true pandemic that is sin. So if, if we're just gauging whether or not we should do certain things because of the momentary crisis, we don't really understand the real crisis. So um, let me read you. I got an email from Steve Smeltzer. Steve is, um, 
he works for our crisis relief arm of the denomination, so he's, they're on top of this. So, there's a bunch of statistics here. I'm not going to bore you with all of them, but let me just say this. The infection rate, uh, and I'm going to split the difference, not give you the low, not give you the high, kind of split the difference. The infection rate of COVID-19 of the United States population could be at 20.6%. The mortality rate of COVID-19 could be at 1%. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay those numbers. When you look at the entire population, that 1% of 326 million is, is quite a lot of people. But by contrast to the normal flu, the infection rate is 13.7%, and the mortality rate is 0.14%. So when you compare it, it's not that big a deal. By contrast, the infection rate of sin is 100%. The mortality rate of sin is 100%. Friends, we have always lived in the middle of a pandemic. And the current situation is merely a shadow of that reality. Lewis says this. Let me read it word for word because it's, it's brilliant. He says, all human culture through all time has always lived under the shadow of something more important than itself. And crises like these, they just make that point clear. Friends, if we could pursue our educations, our careers, our hobbies, our leisurely pursuits, our vacations, our Bible study, daily devotions, prayer times, all those things under normal conditions, but now feel they have so little weight under these new conditions, then we have, in Lewis's words, closed our ears to the voice of reason and opened them very wide to the voice of of our nerves and mass emotions. So when I was reading, uh, I think maybe this was yesterday morning, I was reading his lecture, maybe the morning before that, I immediately thought of this one scene um, from this movie, Men in Black, the original Men in Black, where there's Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And it's the beginning of the movie where they're in the headquarters, and there they are watching the news feed come in, and Will Smith is seeing all of these uh, uh, situations that humanity is on the precipice of destruction, alien invasion, alien diseases, takeovers, all these kinds of things, and his character is starting to panic and freak out. He says, what do you guys do? Why are you so calm? We got to get after this. We got to do something. And Tommy Lee Jones, the, his character, the, the veteran man in black, is just kind of sipping his coffee watching the news feed, everyone's calm, and, and he just looks over to Will Smith's character and says, it's always been like this. We have always been on the razor's edge of annihilation. You just never knew about it. You thought you were in control, but you never were. The only difference between you five minutes ago and you now is now you really realize how out of control life really is. Then he goes back to the news feed and sips his cup of coffee. And I thought, that's brilliant. Friends, we have always lived in a pandemic. It's just sometimes the, the, the luxuries, the ease, the comforts of life have dulled us to that sense of urgency. With the, but let me give a balance here. Let me give a balance because we're not saying that, okay, nothing matters of this world and let's just, you know, go all out and sell all our possessions and be street preachers and that kind of thing. That's, that's, not, the, that's not the case. You see, the Bible, Christianity, has this beautiful balance. Although Christianity presents the world as it actually is, the human existence on the razor's edge of eternal destinies, the Bible never 
tells us to abandon normal activities. In fact, the Bible says to, to engage in them fully while offering them to God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, for example, whether you eat, whether you drink, do all things for the glory of God. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, um, whether, whatever, whatever you do in word or deed, do all with thanks to Jesus Christ. Do all in the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God our Father through Him. So, so there's this wonderful balance of the normal in the really unusual. So for example, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we have these wonderful metaphors of the Christian being this absolutely single-minded, devoted, disciplined soldier and athlete. Second Peter chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 says that we're sojourners and exiles in this world. We're just passing through to the citizenship, as Hebrew says us, to a country far away that we are destined to go. Yet at the same time, the same Scriptures tell us Romans chapter 12, to love one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, to be patient with one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, to care for one another. These two pictures, they seemingly opposite pictures, describe really what we are as Christians, single-mindedly focused on a country that is our home country, passing through this world, but at the same time having a, a care and concern that goes broad and deep for everyone in the moment we are at. It's a wonderful balance. So friends, if learning God's word, the pastoral epistles in, in our case, is not important to us now, then it was never truly important to us then. And all that's taking place is that this crisis has revealed where our hearts have been. But if it was truly important before, as I know it is for the overwhelming amount of people in our church, then it is just as important now, maybe even more so. So um, there's my 18-minute uh, introduction to a 10 or 15-minute sermon. So let's, if you have a Bible, get your Bible, open to 1 Timothy chapter 4. What I'd like to do is I'd like to read this chapter. It's not that long. It's only 16 verses. And then what I want to do is make three short points that I think are relevant for our particular times based in the text of 1 Timothy chapter 4. So let me read it to you. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity." 
until I come. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. When we ended chapter 3 of 1 Timothy a couple of weeks ago, we learned who we are, the household of God, a people of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In chapter 4, we learn what we do. And let me just tell you three things. Let me just share three things that come out of these, these verses that speak of what we do. Number one, we teach with authority. Friends, in times of crisis, whether it's, whether it's doctrinal compromise, shaking the foundations of the church, or a global pandemic, people need truth. People need truth to see their way clearly. What people need is the clarity and authority of God's Word in their life. Did you notice several times Paul saying this to Timothy and by application to the Christians in the Ephesian church? Verse 11, Paul says, command and teach these things. Verse 13, Paul writes, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In verse 16, Paul says, watch your teaching. And then in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, God's Word is breathed out and is profitable for teaching. Friends, now more than ever, we need to be able to point ourselves and point people to God's Word. We, we, we don't want to point to them to talk about things about God's Word or our opinion. We want to take them right to the Word of God because they need that clarity and they need that authority. For example, Take them to Romans chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, when Paul commands, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of others. Or Philippians 2, 4, where he says, do not look out for your interests alone, but for the interests of others. Right there, friends, that's like two home sermons. What's that? What, what are those two verses going to look like for you in the next week or two? What are they going to look like in the next month or two? Right, right now, we're at that stage that's called the kind of, it's called the heroic stage of crisis where everybody kind of ramps up and we're ready to meet the challenge. But after a few weeks of that, we, we go into what's called the disillusionment stage when it goes on for a month, two months, or longer. Can we stand authoritatively on God's Word and live out those commands? Let me read to you one you wouldn't think of, Psalm 96, verses 7 through 9. Listen to the way the psalmist is commanding us to, to go about thinking of God's Word. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. How, how perfect. Written to families of the larger group of people. Ascribe to the Lord. What should we do? What should we ascribe to Him? Glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. So friends, we want to teach the Word to ourselves, to the people around us with authority. Because Jesus said, heaven and earth is going to pass away, but my words do not pass away. And let me encourage you, a great place to, to encourage your heart in the authority of God's Word is to read what's called the enthronement psalms. So, for example, Psalm 29, 93, um, 95 through 99, 
These are great psalms that talk about God being enthroned on high. And here's why this is important. Because in times of crisis, we want control, don't we? We want to control things. And as we learned, we're not in control. We never have been. The enthronement psalms are great because rather than trying to seek control, which is a futile effort, we turn our gaze upon the Creator who is in control of everything. And that's what we want to fill our vision with so that we can teach with the authority that Scripture gives us. So that's the first thing, teach with authority. Second is live with integrity. When Paul was writing to Timothy, who was trying to lead this church to some crazy times, Paul knew that his ability to teach with authority is only in direct proportion to his ability to live with integrity. In other words, his life has to back up the things he's teaching. You see that in verse 12. Verse 12, let no one despise you. In Timothy's case, it was because of his youth. And he says, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Friends, the same applies to us. And it's not just here in verse 12. Later in verse 16, he says it, keep a close watch on your teaching and your lifestyle. So if this applied to Timothy and the Ephesian Christians, this applies to us as well. We have got to be able to live with integrity so that our message can be received, right? What good is it to tell people that, hey, Jesus is our treasure and our hope if we ourselves are constantly gripped by fear and worry? It doesn't work. So friends, let's live in such a way that we can be proud of the way our beliefs and our behavior both proclaim that we really believe and we live out of the fact that Jesus is our treasure, that Jesus is our hope. Um, There's a gentleman, um, a pastor from Scotland, Robert Robert Murray McShane. Many of you may not know him, but he's one of the uh, Scottish heroes of the faith. He died at the young age of 29, only seven years in vocational ministry. He died in 1843 because of the typhus epidemic that swept through Scotland. What he said was so brilliant. He says, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. It wasn't his charismatic leadership. It wasn't his great preaching. It wasn't any of those things. He said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Friends, our culture's greatest need is our personal holiness, our corporate holiness as well, and it begins by each and every one of us being committed to live with integrity. So first one, let's teach with authority. Second one, we have to live with integrity. And third and finally, train for eternity. Train for eternity. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. And I'm sorry, all you physical fitness buffs, but here's what God's Word says. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, I'm just joking. We should train ourselves. We should keep ourselves physically fit so that we can be usable for the things of God. But we should never just focus on our physical training to the neglect of training our souls. Did you notice how rich this chapter is in encouraging us to train for eternity? Look at verse 10. Do to this end, what's the end? We saw that in the verse prior to that, verses 7, 8, and 9. Godliness, developing godliness. To this end, Paul says, we toil and we strive. Verse 14, don't neglect this gift you have. Every one of you has a gift. Paul says we should not neglect this gift. Verse 15, practice and immerse yourself in these things. Verse 16, keep a watch on yourself. Persist in these things. 
Friends, this is a great time for every one of us to exercise these spiritual muscles of ours. Let me wrap up by saying, if, if we are going to be the pillar and buttress of truth for our culture, we need to lean into each of these things. We've got to know God's Word so that we can give people the clarity and the hope from Scripture. We've got to live with integrity if we're going to back that up, right? And we have to train for eternity because that's really what's at stake all the time as we recognize. It's always the time. Now, each of these will look differently for all of us, but all of us must work at each of these. If it was important before this whole situation came about, it's certainly important now and maybe even more. Friends, may God give us the grace to be the household of God, to be the people of the living God, to be the pillar and buttress of truth. Before I conclude in prayer, let me just encourage you, please stay connected as a body. Uh, there are many ways to do that. Via Realm, put posts on your community groups and the groups you're in. Put pictures. I don't know if you knew you could do that, but load up pictures on Realm so we can see how everyone's doing. If you're on Instagram, use the, um, the hashtag CCCBodyLife to show, send photos or share those things. Join our Facebook page, Christ Community Church. Let's do what we can to stay connected, right? Let's, let's press in. Let, let's, let's press in towards one another so God may be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to get together through the means of this, these technologies. We pray, Lord, that we would be a body distributed throughout all of South Orange County, Lord, that we would bring you great glory and do good for your people in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.com dot org.